Welcome to Who's That Girl, a new girl podcast. I'm Kritika. And I'm Kelly. And today we'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 22, Tomatoes. This episode originally aired April 24th, 2012, and was written by David Walpert and Kim Rosenstock. David Walpert last wrote for the New Girl episode Bully, and Kim Rosenstock last wrote for Fancy Man Part 2. Uh, the director for this episode is Michael Spiller, and he is from Brooklyn, New York. He went to SUNY Purchase or University, and he has directed on many, many TV shows, and mostly TV shows more than anything else, uh, but some of the shows and series that he's directed more than a few TV episodes for is Mixedish, Blackish, Modern Family, Mindy Project, Scrubs, Ugly Betty, Big Day, Sex in the City. So he's done a lot. He's been around a long time and also directed this fun episode of New Girls. So in this episode, Jess sees Russell's ex-wife, Uli, at the gym and invites her to dinner with Russell. And that dinner, of course, as you expect, was weird. <laughs> and Jess looks for more passion in her relationship as a result of it, but then that whole thing kind of turns into Russell and Jess's breakup. And then through a date with Cece's roommate, Nadia, Schmidt and Cece end up owning up to their feelings they have for each other, which was quite exciting. And all of that was despite, too, Schmidt's broken penis that he's in the hospital for. We'll talk about that. And Nick, in this whole episode, has decided to swear off women to instead grow tomatoes, hence the name of the episode. So let's talk about Nick and his giving up on women. <laughs> I... Like, he goes, I'm going to put all my energy into tomatoes. And to me, I saw that and I was like, wait, wait, Nick, what energy are you giving to the tomatoes that you weren't giving to women? Because in the last few episodes, all that you were doing was dating undergrads. And I think, and, and I was trying to remember, but I think the last like major type of relationship he was trying to make happen was with Amanda, like Belle. Um, Julia. Oh, You're yeah. forgetting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Julia. <laughs> His whole, his whole girlfriend. So that happened. But like, I mean, Julia, I don't, we don't know. We don't really know how he met Julia, I guess. But he stopped dating Julia and understand that like maybe he needed a rebound. But he had his rebound with the undergrads. And why tomatoes? Why is this your next plan of action? I don't know about why tomatoes, but I somewhat agree with your statement about he didn't have that much energy going to women before. I think even if you're dating casually, which is kind of what he was doing, putting energy into lying, like Schmidt tells you, that's energy. And so there is energy he's putting towards women, but it's not in a productive way that allows him to like further a relationship because all the heartbreak he talked about, that was all like Julia, Caroline. I don't know if it really counts Amanda's heartbreak. I know. I only wish she was still in the show. That's just me. I know. <laughs> so it's episode 22 and I'm wishing she's still there. <laughs> only been 18. It's fine. But I don't know why tomatoes either. It's a weird fruit that you know, it's not like we've ever seen from him that he loves tomatoes or like that's something he appreciates. And what made the scene though for me was that it looked like when it started that everybody was just learning about this for the first time. But then as everybody goes to leave, Jess is the one who was like, oh wait, I told him not to start with this. And I was like, okay, another classic case of just being involved in everybody's life and just over, like superimposing herself and like no no, no you guys gotta stay like both in helping Nick but then also enforcing everyone to be there because I don't know she's just very involved yeah a little a little forceful at times but that actually could make a lot of sense maybe this wasn't actually Nick's idea maybe this was Nick feeling sad about something and being like man I don't have any like significant woman and like I'm over women and Jess was like great idea maybe you should put your energy into tomatoes because seeing that scene Nick goes over to water the tomato plant even and immediately drops the watering can on the tomatoes. And it's hilarious, of course. But then why did I forget Julia? Because that brought me back to the cactus that he received from Julia and how after five minutes of having the cactus drops it on the ground and had to like piece it back together. I'm just like plants and Nick Miller are not a good combination. And so this definitely, I think that's a really good point. This whole plan reeks of Jess and it was not Nick's decision. And it's furthered by the point that 
like you said, that cactus episode, at the end of that episode, Jess gives him a plant and says, it's okay, you're a plant killer, which I can see it both ways. In one sense, it's really nice that, you know, she's pushing this plant on him to show him like, okay, you killed one plant. That doesn't mean you're like, can't do this ever again or anything like that. But at the same time, it's like, okay, why do you keep pushing this thing that he's not good at? unless he's asking you to push it. Like, it's different if it was coming from Nick. And like you said, and I've said, I don't think this really feels like a Nick thing to do, except that it's just like quirky and weird. Yeah, I definitely agree because it's definitely, it's not Nick. But he's he's all excited about it nonetheless. He was really getting a fake smile on his face or whatever kind of silly Nick Miller way he does that. And then he starts going through everybody there, which it was kind of funny to have everybody there because- I don't know. I almost, I wish just like a little bit that they pretend supported him a little bit more. You know, I was a little mad that they were like all there like, oh my gosh, you're wasting our time. Like, what is this for? Okay, Nick. But literally to see the juxtaposition of him standing there with a tomato plant, <laughs> looking at everyone in their couples and he's like going through them, you know, and like, you know, Winston and Shelby are so in love, which was like so cute to see. I'm glad that they're like so advanced in their relationship at least that's how I was feeling about it but it was like Winston and Shelby and then it was Cece and Schmed and Russell and Jess so then I was like oh maybe Nick really is feeling like alone and not you know with somebody but then it just was funny to see that scene like the two sides of the of the screen of that but then two it just Nick's Nick's description of everybody and still being into Russell is just so funny yeah he's very obsessed with Russell which is a whole thing and I think it's fun that they keep that up, though. Like, it's not something that in Fancy Man Part 1, he talks about being in love with Russell and then it drops. Like, it's consistent, and I appreciate that about New Girl. But the scene of watching them be on opposite sides, when I first watched it, I didn't really see that, where they were really playing these couples against Nick being alone. But it is really powerful of a note to just be that one single person when all of your friends are in relationships and to watch that. And for the most part, Nick wasn't bitter at anybody else about it, which was nice to see too, because sometimes it's like, oh, you people. The only one he was kind of bitter about was Winston and Shelby, which I kind of agree. Watching them through that whole episode, I was like, oh, this is so gross. Like, Winston, why do you have to say my beautiful Shelby? Just say Shelby. Like, it's just too much, Winston. I agree a little bit that Winston was getting annoying about it. It's like puppy love. That was the phase that they were in was in really silly puppy love. We kind of talked about it before when they drove to see each other and maybe that was like a little obsessive, you know, they couldn't even be away for like so little. So maybe that part's like where they're kind of, kind of gross or kind of annoying. But then, you know, at some level I'm like, good for them. It was exciting. I, I like seeing them together. But then that really invited a Winston and Nick episode in such a way where we kind of got to see more of their friendship. We kind of see Nick trying to take care of these tomato plants the whole time and Winston giving commentary on it. But I just have to say, Nick drinking the water out of the watering can and spitting it on the tomato plants was much. That was hilarious. Like what, what was he doing? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I literally have no words for that entire scene. It just... It was hilarity in the comedy of like how Nick was taking care of them, all the scarecrow stuff that happened in this episode. I loved how the scarecrow was literally dressed like Nick, which just to scare away these birds. But it was complemented by this really heavy emotional thing where Nick is like, I used to be your Shelby. He's jealous, but in a way that I think everyone understands when you're used to being someone's person and they find like a partner and you haven't found that for yourself, it it can hurt. And like, it's such a heavy emotional thing. And on the other side, there's a scarecrow dressed like Nick. Like it's, I don't know how New Girl does it, but they did it very well in this episode. Very much agree. And and to your point, it's it's that feeling too. It's when something is like a newer relationship, which I guess Winston and Shelby have been dating a little while at this point, but it's still newer in the sense that, you know, Nick is really recognizing that he used to be his Shelby, meaning Two, to me, it's like when friends first get in a relationship, they get all consumed by the new relationship a lot of times, despite how like they don't think that they're getting consumed by it, but really they are. And then, you know, Nick is just sitting around like, oh, I guess I don't have anyone to hang out with now because you're in a relationship 
and I guess I don't have anybody else, you know? So I, I, I understand that feeling too. Um, but yeah, I love the scarecrow and I thought you made a great point. Like they really balanced this comedy really well, like the, the emotion, but the comedy. And <laughs> this is, this is me obviously coming in the logistics police. I feel like sometimes, cause I'm just like, Nick is, it's been hours. You've had your tomato plant for hours maximum. There's no birds coming to get your leaves on your tomato plant. Like you don't have anything to worry about. You're in downtown LA. Like the birds are not coming for your plant. And then he, apparently though, like that spawned, like that seeing, just seeing birds in the sky spawned his need for a scarecrow, which how quickly did he go get the hay and stuff a scarecrow? <laughs> and then he, he puts it up, but then he takes it down and he's stuffing it in. And like, in both times, by the way, like Winston is just like 100 coming back with the comebacks because he's telling Nick like, oh, you look like you're crawling out of the grave from the thriller video. And then he's stuffing the, the, the scarecrow into the trash can. And he's like, is this Martin Scorsese's Wizard of Oz? I just, I died laughing when I heard that. I thought it was so funny. I was like, that would be a really interesting take on Wizard of Oz. But I just, Nick and the way he went real into the scarecrow to me was like hilarious. Like I really needed that in this episode. He went really into like full farmer mode, not just the scarecrow, because he's like getting Winston to leave the roof by just like get get at him. And I just I know where Nick was going in this episode, but I'm glad that they took him through this route instead of just pushing him into like a depression or something like that, where we kind of saw him really sad after like Julia broke up with him. But this was very like channeling it into good. So I do give props to Jess for that if that's her plan for it. And I like that he fully embraced the tomato planting and just, I'm going to be a farmer now. And it's going to be on a rooftop in downtown LA, but I'm a farmer. It was amazing. I really, really liked that. But then on top of that, like just seeing Winston and, and Nick's friendship a little bit more at the end, Winston's gluing a tomato plant or a tomato on the tomato plant. And I was like, Winston that is so nice because I mean the audience knew it and Winston confirmed it for us that there's no one in the world that knows less about a tomato plant than Nick Miller so is he really gonna think a tomato sprung up overnight yes he is and he's gonna be so excited for it and I just was mad I really wanted to see like that scene happen and I really wanted to see Nick come up and be so happy and so proud of his work you know I like I thought what Nick's what Winston was doing was perfect and I really wanted to see Nick's reaction like I wanted the the credit scene to extend that much further I agree it would have been very nice to have seen Nick be overjoyed and less of a grumpy face but more of like an actual like genuine reaction to that and I think it just goes to show that like I think this would have happened regardless of their conversation but it was nice to see this after when Winston's response to I used to be your Shelby was to think back about all the bad times they had together, which is in their eyes kind of like good times because they were together. And like one of the the examples they gave is when they pulled their money for an online dating site. And I don't think that that is what made Winston go and do the tomato. I feel like Winston is genuine enough that he would have done it anyway. But I do feel like it kind of sparked it a little bit where like, oh, my friend still needs me. Like I've kind of gotten to a better place. I have a steady job. Like I'm I'm with someone I love. But hey, my friend needs me to like be there for him a little bit more. So I like that the progression and I think it'll obviously keep up because Winston and Nick feel like friends who are always going to be there for each other when they fight they make up with a frozen waffle like there's not really a reason for them not to be friends and it was just very sweet like you're saying of that whole scene also in this episode we had Jess and Uli and Russell it was no longer a Jess and Russell relationship Jess just coming in to see the guys like the guys were totally having a totally different conversation I thought that was hilarious Jess walks up and she just goes something weird happened to me today and I'm like yeah Jess your whole relationship with Russell is weird and awkward and weird like it's all bad you know I mean it's not all bad but it's mostly bad it's mostly a complicated thing I don't think it's as complicated as you do throughout this. Like in each episode, I feel like you're a little bit more critical of Russell and Jess than I am. But I liked how the New Girl writers especially called out that 
Jess was wearing a cute swimsuit to call out that Uli was naked and for Uli to actually say that too, to be like, oh, you're wearing a cute swimsuit and hug her naked. It was very weird, but I don't understand why Jess's reaction to that is, oh, you should come to dinner with Russell and I. And then they actually do the dinner, which Russell, as the boyfriend and ex-husband, has no thoughts about. Like, we don't ever see them discussing this or like him not being okay with it or anything. I was shocked at that. Jess is clearly insecure about the relationship too in such a way especially seeing Uli and seeing naked Uli and like she's like feeling her back like it's a bag of ropes like I guess that's supposed to mean it's muscular so I think Jess just all around was feeling insecure about it and I think too this is another point of Jess trying to solve those problems that she doesn't need to be solving that people don't want her to be solving. So like there's going to this dinner. And like you said, I I'm surprised that Russell didn't like, we didn't have a moment where Russell's like, I don't want to be here. I didn't want to do this. Like you want to do this, but I'm doing it to please you. Cause that's like the emotion that I would think Russell would do, or he would flat out say no, like he wouldn't want to go. But I think it's Jess insecure, Jess's insecurities that are causing her to do this rather than actually genuinely trying to solve the problems. Like between anybody like why is she trying to fix Russell and Uli when she's dating Russell like it doesn't make any sense you know and she's like it just feels like an awkward thing and I'm like it is an awkward thing anybody who's probably been in some relationship that's divorced or with an ex and then tries to meet the new partner it's not going to be a great relationship and if it is that's probably odd if not odd it's at least very rare for people to be on Like being on good terms with your ex, I don't think is rare, but being on such good terms that your new girlfriend or wife or whatever is friends and the three of you hang out together, it shows not only Jess's insecurity, but kind of her immaturity because she really is just like, I want everyone to be happy. I want everyone to be together. And Jess, that's not always going to be the case. And sometimes you just kind of have to make your peace with that. And that's actually for the better, not just that it's not happening but it's there's a reason why we're not all friends and she really pushes it like you're saying and I think it's basically unresolved from her parents divorce because we find out that like when she's good at handling tough situations by like tap dancing and telling her singing and saying her parents are okay they're just being weird and then yell and surrender I was I was like, what is this? What are you doing, Jess? And so I think she never fully processed that and got over that. And that's why when she sees even her boyfriend not being on great terms with his ex-wife, she's like, no, we need to fix this because she's still processing her parents' divorce. I think that's a great assessment, Dr. Kritika. (laughs) (laughs) But then I I also, I'm like, I, I, I really do agree with you, but then I think it's really, really weird, even on top of that, for Jess in her head to be comparing her as a child looking at her parents arguing in their divorce to her relationship with Russell and seeing Russell and Uli have a fight in their divorce. Like, you're not their child, Jess, and you don't need to solve this for them. Like, that, that the whole reason th- that this came up for me was is just Jess's insecurities, which we've said, but it's just... It was a weird thing. And Uli had her own thing she was playing at. Uli had her own insecurities throughout this whole thing. Russell, meanwhile, is like, why am I, you know, like here? But then Uli just saying quesadillas, like quesadillas. And you're just like, Uli, stop. (laughs) I don't know if I agree with Uli having her own insecurities because I feel like more than insecure, she was just trying to show how well off she was and how happy she was without Russell. It's a very weird dynamic that they have because they're fighting and you're right. Russell doesn't want to be there. And I think at one point he says, this is why we shouldn't have done this, but they're fighting and your point about like Jess isn't their kid, but she's acting like their kid. Like she's saying like inside voice and like people are staring at this fight and stuff, but there's so much sexual attention in that fight that I I don't even know what's going on. Like, if this had ended with, like, Russell getting back together with Uli or breaking up with Jess to give it a try, I would have also seen that as, like, a very possible thing from just that scene because there was so much tension. Well, exactly. And, I mean, not to skip ahead in this, in this scene and whatnot, but Russell and Jess lead – it leads – this all leads to their breakup a little bit more, but then – I don't think Russell's going to go be with Uli now because of this dinner. Like, 
yes, it, like that's the whole thing is that they're talking about, you know, how they had their passion and everything related to that. And I just don't, I really, I, I almost feel like Jess was making, she was maybe insecure, but maybe she was making an excuse for a reason to get out of it. I don't know. Was there something else there? Because she sees Uli again at the gym too, which I think that's where I was talking about Uli's insecurities or that's what made it seem like that for me because she's there and she's talking about Russell and she's talking about how, oh, you know, we're always going to have this connection and doing her stretch at the end. And she's just like, Russell. And that to me was Uli just trying to assert her dominance. I was like, what is Uli's point of doing this? Like it was a weird dinner she was there and now it's like the next day or something and she's still trying to like play the upper hand with Jess and so is that scaring Jess off is Jess like this is too much drama like I don't want to be part of it yeah and maybe it is insecurity or maybe it's just like controlling nature I I don't really know but obviously Uli didn't find the dinner to be something weird like we can tell that Russell was like I don't know why we're doing this but Uli was just like yeah I'm gonna come to dinner like hey and you know, to your point about asserting dominance, like if we look back at the last episode, when she drops Sarah off, she keeps calling Russell her husband and just keeps trying to ask like, wait, it's really over, right? Like, I'm not trying to be with someone who's married. She's like, no, 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 we're not married, but he'll always be my husband. And so there is something weird there with Uli. And I don't know what the term is for it, but it's, it's just weird. And the other thing is just like watching Jess talk to her in that scene you obviously knew like what was coming next. Like she was hearing all the stuff about passion and you're like, okay, so she doesn't see that passion. She's going to go and try and force it. She's going to try and pick a fight. And what I thought was interesting about that is a couple episodes ago, Russell specifically said, I like our relationship because we don't fight like our my ex-wife. And I think like little fights are healthy for a relationship, but this is like unnecessary. Like the the level of disagreement that – Uli and Russell had if they had that over everything would be unhealthy and I don't know why Jess thinks that that's something that she wants to emulate and to your point maybe she was looking subconsciously even for a way out because it it just didn't make sense for her to like harp on this fact when she knew that Russell didn't want that unless she always wanted that but it didn't seem like she did until she talked to Uli. Yeah I I agree with that I guess because until until seeing Uli at the gym and having those interactions, having the dinner, it was just, I guess, more and more clear to Jess, but also not clear in the same way it would be clear to someone with like a light bulb moment of like, oh, this is what this is. Like, I don't think she was really interpreting it in the moment, but it clearly did lead. She like was super overreacting and trying to literally like she was throwing coasters at him. She threw coasters at his head. And I'm just like, and Russell, like, good on him for like playing along and like trying to just be like, okay, just wants to do whatever she's doing. And we're going with that. And I'm like, that's not passion, Jess. Like, I don't know what you're doing, but you're, you're forcing something that you're fixing something. And again, that is not, you're not trying to fix it in the right way. Like, this is not a conversation. You're just trying to say, oh, if you like this, I want to be this, but he doesn't like this, just as you said. And then they go home. And so he's taking Jess home and in the car, right, is where they break up. But like, she pushes the wrong button. And and that to me is like, they had a little fight at that moment, but it wasn't even like a, a fight out of like passion. It was the annoying, like they were annoyed fight. Like you knew it was kind of done. And so I'm kind of glad that this, that honestly, this did end their relationship. As you said, I've been critical of them the whole time. <laughs> I'm I'm glad that this ended was kind of the end. I was like, you know, I don't think it was really meant to be. And, you know, and this is something that as I had watched these scenes first, and, and obviously Dermot Mulroney, I've always really, really liked him. And like, and I always felt Russell's character was really cute and like that them together was actually a good thing. But seeing it again, I'm just in looking at it and like, looking at it a little closer to talk about it a little bit more, I'm, I definitely am like, yeah, Jess, this was a good experience for you, but this is something that you were never meant to stay in for a long period of time. I agree. And I think that different relationships happen at different phases of your life for reasons. And they were not in the same phase of life. Like she was not ready to be a stepmom to Sarah, not really. And even if that wasn't like a next step for them to get like engaged and married right away, that's still where it would 
eventually end up if Russell still wanted to get married and she did. So I agree with you. Like, I don't think that this was meant to be her like end all relationship. And I do think it was a good experience for her, but it's going to be interesting if she actually learns from this experience and takes some of the things that she wants and takes that into her next relationship. Because Paul, I don't know if I like saw passion necessarily there either. Like it felt more like a very comfortable, friendly, like, we love being together relationship than like an all consuming passion that it seems like she wants. So I don't know if that's something that she's shown that she has ever wanted in the past. So hopefully this is a moment of growth for her. Yeah, I hope so too. But I also don't think that she recognizes it head on when it's right in front of her because she goes upstairs to the loft and okay. She does find Nick with Caroline and the jazz music. What the heck, which sidebar Caroline Caroline. I had the same reaction as Jess. Like, freaking Caroline, are you kidding me? Nick. But then again, like, Winston really did give Nick bad advice. I knew and immediately when Winston was like, you know, I called someone out of the blue and it was amazing. We had the best time ever. And so, duh, he was going to call Caroline because he wasn't going to call Julia or Amanda. Sad face. But <laughs> he calls Caroline. So it was definitely, I was so sad and so mad to see that because I definitely felt like it was aggression for Nick. But then, that causes Nick and Jess to have such a passionate moment together. That was passion. It was passion, but I don't know if it was good passion in that moment or that was like a Russell and Uli passion, which isn't sustainable because they're yelling at each other, but they're not like yelling about anything important. You know, like I, I guess it starts off that way with like, how are you with Caroline and all this like, true anger about it because you know Jess is the one who pretended to be his girlfriend in episode three just to like get him over Caroline like talked him through it when he was living in a photo booth and to see him regress like I'm sure she feels personally just like why did I waste my time with this too and like everyone has said how bad this is for you why are you back with her but then it like just falls into this like arguments about pajamas and like shaking their butt at each other and I was like well okay now we've lost the point here like we're just yelling for the sake of yelling now I I like the point that you made about how it was like Uli and Russell and maybe the frustration and the how she was upset about that because what I was just thinking now is you know Jess is trying to solve the problem about the tomato or like solve the problem for Nick if Nick feels like he wants to swear off women I'm going to solve that problem and he's going to grow tomatoes no problem that's going to be successful. Jess with Russell is like, I'm going to get Uli and Russell to be, you know, in a good relationship together, but not back together, but on speaking terms. And Russell and I are going to have more passion and it's all going to be perfect. And I'm going to solve those problems. And clearly she just got home from breaking up with Russell, not having solved that. And now seeing Nick with Caroline, she, he has not sworn off woman. He's gone back to a woman that is horrible for him, you know, and causes so much destruction and just now has lost or like lost in a way, but like lost that helpful thing as well, that helpful project. So I feel like maybe it could be that part of the passion. You're right. That part of me, I was like, Nick and Jess, Nick and Jess passion. But I think you're right that it's maybe she was more just like reacting to having just broken up with Russell, having gone through that situation with Uli and seeing Nick and Caroline together. And it's just all of that combined. But then you're right. <laughs> then they start shaking their butts at each other, which Nick, I thought his line was so stark and like good of a point. Like I almost wish that like he goes, if you don't want to look at my face, then you can look at my ass. And he like turns around. I like, I wanted him to turn around and walk away back in with Caroline. That's what I really like. I felt like that would have made Nick look really cool in that moment and like would have hurt Jess a little bit. But then that's where it's almost to me like it bridges that line of like there's definitely some chemistry there because no, he doesn't walk away. He doesn't make Jess feel bad. He just starts shaking his butt at her. Like they act like five-year-olds together. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I definitely expected it to be a more serious take too, but then it is New Girl and there has to, like we said, balance that emotion and comedy. But what was really frustrating to me was nobody walked out. 
They're screaming, and I don't know where Schmidt is. I don't know where Winston is, but Caroline is in that room. And if the person I was just getting back together with was screaming at another girl, I would walk out and be like, wait, are you okay? Like, what's going on? Should I leave? Like, he just said I need to talk to Jess for a minute. And if someone was yelling, I would have walked out. Or at least, like, open the door and, like, peek my head out to be like, are they hurting each other? Like, what's going on? (laughs) You know? It, it like I mean, even if it was a stupid fight by the end, they were still all yelling. And then Jess like storms off to like Schmidt's room, I guess, or the kitchen. Like I was like, where are you going? Your room is on the other side. And wouldn't you like go to your room if you were so upset about this? Yeah, I don't I don't know where she was going either. I mean, I think I mean, too, uh, another moment was that she like even recognized Nick's potential. And part of the shouting match, she's like, you have so much potential, you know, like that was another moment I thought that they were like. It was a little bit more than just shouting, but yeah, I'm with you that why did no one walk out? Where was she going? How, how did that happen? Also, where was Schmidt? I mean, I think it is a really good question to ask where's Schmidt in all of this? Cause Winston, maybe he was with Shelby, but I think timeline wise, Schmidt might've been at the apartment on a date with Cece's roommate, which the way that that all came together was really silly, which we can, we can type <laughs> critique is thinking really hard about how the timeline could fit together. Yeah, because, well, I think that Schmidt's date with Nadia was during the scene of Uli's dinner. So I think Schmidt's in the hospital at this point. Okay. But well, nobody's we'll get- worried about the fact that their roommate <laughs> isn't there all, all day. But yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Cece, though, this this date is so ridiculous because, you know, Schmidt goes over, sees Nadia at the apartment, Cece's roommate, Cece, you know, is trying to play, like, give the cold shoulder and be like, no, I think we should take time. Let's take a little breath apart from each other. And so Nadia's like, well, then I can go on a date. And Schmidt immediately was like, yep, let's go. And even when Cece was like, wait, uh, no, that's not what I meant, you know. And I was mad at Schmidt in that moment. He's being vindictive. Because his next statement was, well, that's what you want, right, Cece? Me to go out with other people? And, like, okay, even if she's ready for you to go out with other people, we talked about this, like, in Kids before he found out that she might have been pregnant. She didn't mean for you to go get another date right in front of her. Just do it when she's not around. Like, and Nadia, like, from that perspective, too, like, obviously, even if there were no feelings involved and it was just, like, purely them hooking up, your roommate was hooking up with this person. How would you immediately say, oh, let's go on a date? Like it should be from a friend perspective, something that comes later, not like in that moment. So I was mad at Schmidt, but I was also mad at Nadia because she's just jumping the gun without thinking about her friend's feelings. I think that's who they were making Nadia's character out to be. I feel like it would have have been on Cece, unfortunately, to say, hey, Nadia, I don't want you to do this. Do not go, like, or else you have to find a new place to live. Like, that might have been harsh, but I feel like Cece would have done that. Schmidt was being vindictive. I agree with that. And he just wasn't, he wasn't being thoughtful. He was, like, just trying to, like, make Cece mad. And he did. And he did make her mad. But then the first date that, Schmidt and Nadia are having is at the loft and Schmidt makes her dinner, I guess. I don't, I don't know. But then, so timeline wise, you're saying that's the same night as like the dinner with Russell and Uli and Jess. Okay. I think so because in the morning when Jess is saying this weird thing that happened to her at the gym, that's when Schmidt's talking about going out with someone whose ancestors probably burned his ancestors village. Oh, right. So I think those dates happen on the same time. And then the next day is when Jess and Russell break up. And like after she goes to the gym again, they break up and Schmidt is at the hospital. Yeah. Schmidt's at the hospital and Nick and Caroline get together. I see. But then it's like daytime at the hospital and we see through the evening with Russell and Nick and Jess and all of that. But then it's daytime the next day when he's back home. So he had to stay overnight. Do you have to have surgery for that kind of thing? For a broken penis? I do not have to say I'm I am not familiar with the with what happens if that happens. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> but that date was really silly. And it, I I mean, how did how did they even end up? I 
I understand the comedy. Here's here's a part of like a thing of frustration I think with me is like I understand the comedy of of Schmidt having a broken penis and he's describing it. He's like, oh, she must have a right angle in there. Like something went wrong, you know. But it's one thing I feel like for Schmidt to be vindictive and go on a date with Nadia and another girl and make Cece feel bad. But he broke his penis because he was trying to have sex with her or he was having sex with her and something went wrong. And you not only went out with another girl, you also were going to have sex with her. That to me was a cross line, you know? I mean, yes, it ended in a good way in the sense that it did get Schmidt and Cece to like own up their feelings to each other. And that I really was like, yes, finally, I'm so excited for you guys because don't hide behind this. Like you do care. But then I think we, I think the show Grace glossed over a little bit how Schmidt actually was having sex with someone else. Yeah, they don't they don't bring it up as a big deal. Um, and I think there's that's obviously because they want to get to this resolution and but they wanted the comedy of like him being able to say, I have a broken penis. But it is pretty intense to go from sleeping with someone to dating someone different. And that's why we saw Cece start to walk out, right? Like, because he's she's like, I you actually slept with her. Like you didn't just go on this date to make me jealous. You slept with her, which means okay, you don't have to have feelings for her, but you were interested in doing that with her. And if you had feelings for me at that time, that's not okay, which is why she left. But then she comes back in when he's like, what's your problem? And she just opens up, which is great that she opened up. And like you said, I was very excited to see that. But I feel like Cece deserves just a little bit more. I think it was messy of her to be like, oh, we should take a break just because like, whatever, like, if she liked him, and she was hoping for him to fight for her. I think that was unnecessary of a test for her to have to do. But I do think that like, if he was sleeping with someone else, like you're saying, it was really quick of him to just be like, oh, but actually, I like you. And like, I glad to see it. But on a more intense look, I wish there had been more for Cece. Like, I wish it had been, you know, we went on this date and it was awful and I told her I didn't like it and she got mad and that's why I'm in the hospital or whatever that could have been. Like, I broke my ankle, like, stepped down the stairs weird. Like, that could have been the same. And also, like you said, I think before, how did literally no one realize that Schmidt was gone and that he was in the hospital and Nadia had just gone home? Like, no big deal. Schmidt's in the hospital. Like, it's fine. And didn't tell anybody. Cece didn't tell anybody. Like, he just was in the hospital. And and when he got back home, like, even Winston, like, he's on the roof with, with Schmidt and, like, joking with him. But it's like, nobody, it didn't even seem like that was a, oh, you're back, Schmidt. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just thought that was silly. Like, nobody knew. How did Cece even find the hospital? Because Nadia, I'm sure, didn't even know. Because she's like, oh, he went to the hospital, you know. And Nadia doesn't even say he went to the hospital. She says, small man went to the hospital. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, so I agree. Like, I don't know why no one is concerned about this for such a great group of friends, for people who, like, went with Nick to his biopsy and stuff. Like, they should be a lot more concerned about Schmidt. But maybe it's just they have a lot going on in their own lives, except Winston. Yeah, I I don't, I don't know either. But then we're going to talk a little bit more about Nadia. So getting into our Schmidtism, we chose a really fun scene. And please... Don't get mad at me for my poor accent. I cannot do Nadia's accent the way that Nadia does Nadia's accent. So we are going to go into the scene where we're talking about Mick Mouse. So again, critique is going to be your Schmidt. I'm going to be Nadia. What are you laughing at? Cheese is for mouse. Are you Mick Mouse? Am I what? Why don't you get in your spaceship like Mick Mouse? What are you talking about? McMouse. What is a McMouse? McMouse. I don't understand what McMouse is. McMouse. I don't under. I don't. What does that mean? What is a McMouse? McMouse. Are you saying Mickey Mouse? Yes. In America, honey. Okay. Mickey Mouse. He's earthbound and seen. Hopefully that didn't blow out your eardrums. <laughs> she does get really passionate though. Nadia gets so passionate about McMouse, and it's hilarious the scene was so funny and I mean I will say the scene was so funny but at the other half of it and kind of continuing to talk about it 
it kind of becomes our not in 2020. So it's a little bit of a hybrid, a very funny scene, but we also took a little closer look at it and we were like, mm, do we, do we agree with everything about what this is and who Nadia is and what Nadia's character is? It was questionable. Yeah. Like through the whole episode, Jess, Cece, Nadia herself to some extent and Schmidt all treat Nadia like this outsider, this foreigner, which, okay, literally she's supposed to be a foreigner, but the way they treat her is like super dumb and like, oh, you're not American, so you don't know all these things. Or like in this scene that we just loved from a comedic perspective, Schmidt is so condescending to her. Like, you know, like in America, honey, okay. Like, okay, Schmidt, you can be helpful to someone without being so condescending about it. Totally agree and everything because also he starts off the whole conversation. The first thing that we see of them sitting down to dinner together at the loft was, how do you like America? She could have been in the United States for years, you know, and like in a way to me, Nadia's character was like bastardized in a way from all fronts because Jess is commenting to Cece, like, you really, Cece, you're going to let Schmidt go out with Nadia? She was kicked out of Russia, like Russia, you know, like indicating of all the countries to be kicked out of, like, you have to do something really bad or you have to be such a bad person to get kicked out of Russia. But also, is her backstory really that she got kicked out of a country? Like, and if she got kicked out of Russia, would she really be coming to the United States? Like, if it was really that bad? Like, I feel like on a government policy level, like, that doesn't make sense. But that didn't make sense for her character. I don't know. I was frustrated that that was like her backstory. And there's more. Like, it's not just that, you know, we're talking about her being kicked out, which which we don't know if that's true or not. We, like you said, it may have actually been her backstory, which then writers, why did you do that? Or it might have been Jess's thoughts on Nadia, which is an exaggeration, but still it was unnecessary. And then even when they talk about her with like, in regards to sex, Schmidt's like, of course I'm using protection. And Cece's like, she doesn't even know where she's been. And it's like- okay, are you saying this because she's a foreigner or are you saying this because she's a model or are you saying this because she's Nadia? To us, it really seemed like it was because she was like not American that all of these things were being assigned to her. Yeah, and like the accent that they gave her too, it was like one thing to have an accent, but it was also that the way she spoke and like, okay, maybe she wasn't like familiar with the English language as much, but she was the way she spoke and the way she said things was making her sound dumb. Like, it's not that anyone with broken English can't sound like they know English, you know, or like they are can or be smart and like make a good statement, even if it's like broken English and they're learning the language. But Nadia had broken English, but then sounded dumb. Like, like, like you even said, like she wasn't even calling Schmidt like Schmidt was in hospital or like he was in hospital. It was small man. Like, she she like they were choosing things specifically to make her sound like a flaky model bimbo in a way that was Russian, you know, and like the foreigner and like because she was a foreigner, all of these things applied to her. And it and like I was trying to say, like it's coming from everywhere, like came from Jess, came from Schmidt, came from Nadia herself and how she was written. So while while the Mick Mouse scene was really fun and I really did like I was laughing at the screen, it was a funny moment. It made me think to myself, like, wait. Why do I think Nadia is so funny? Because even in past episodes, I thought Nadia was so great. And like she is so one of my favorite like extra characters that's recurring. But she's kind of mean. She's kind of annoying. And, you know, am I bad for thinking she's funny like or like a bad person? Because what's funny about her is her that she sounds stupid with an accent. Like, I think that's part of the humor. I don't know. It made me it made me think about myself and my thoughts a little bit more. I had to I had to do some thinking. I think it's okay to find her funny for her mean comments because sometimes that is what like brings out humor, someone being mean to someone else. I don't know what that says about us that that's funny. But yeah, I think at least from a writer's perspective, I think a lot of the humor of her character is she's a model so she's dumb. As she's from a, somewhere else, so she has an accent. Let's put those together and make this like very stereotypical character, and we can write so many jokes for it. So, I do think that's a writer's perspective of it. Yeah. Well, 
I feel I, it's it's a it's a balance, I think, because I can still really appreciate this McMouse scene because that I could see as like a legitimate thing that someone, you know, maybe who has immigrated to the United States, not really grasping its Mickey Mouse or like maybe colloquially, colloqu- that's a hard word, colloquially, they <laughs> refer to her or refer to Mickey Mouse as McMouse, you know, and so she knows it as McMouse, but then from a under the hood perspective of just like, well, wait, like this is just a scene of her not understanding something American. And then with Schmidt on top of that being not just being like, Oh, Mickey mouse. Oh yeah. I totally love Mickey mouse. That's great. He's like in America, it's Mickey mouse and he's earthbound, not from space. You know, like he was a jerk about it. So balance. It's funny, but it's kind of (laughs) not. Yeah, the whole thing, Nadia's character is kind of problematic. But switching gears a little bit into our next section of the podcast, we typically talk about pop culture. And Nadia's scene with Schmidt or Nadia's date with Schmidt led to a lot of pop culture references. But since there were so many other ones in this episode as well, you can find more info in our show notes. And the ones we're going to focus on today was actually the first one is from the very, very beginning of the episode where Nick is introing his tomatoes and he does like freeze frame and then he does the a fist pump so it's kind of a dual reference here because the first part of it is the freeze frame so most people probably immediately think of like oh when you jump up in the air and someone takes a photo of you jumping and freeze frame right and obviously I think that is definitely part of what the pop culture reference is here but when I went into like a deep dive of this freeze frame, I also started looking at like how it actually comes together. And so a freeze frame in like film and video is when a single frame of a show is repeatedly on screen. So it basically freezes the action. And this has been around for like quite a while, obviously. Um, The first known freeze frame as far as a film industry term was in Alfred Hitchcock's 1928 film Champagne. And there were TV shows like in the 70s that um, there was a series Wonder Woman that used to end with a freeze frame of Diana Prince smiling. And it's also a term or a technique where actors freeze at a particular point to enhance the scene. So obviously when you're jumping, you're not really freezing, but the idea behind it would be like to capture that moment when you're up in the air, happy, et cetera. Um, And so that was a really cool idea behind it. There's also a song called Freeze Frame written about this by Seth Justman and Peter Wolf, which was released in the 1980s. So it's a very cool concept to have all of that kind of put in here. This is really fascinating, Kritika, and and hearing, you know, how it is used in film and how the the phrase came to be, because when I saw Nick do that in the in the episode, I just thought, oh, that's like the song freeze frame, you know, and that's the only reference that I had for it. So like it is that song, but it also is this other thing. So I think that's really cool and really good. Yeah, it was quite interesting when we were researching for this podcast, which just led to like deep dive after deep dive of like all of these photography techniques. But it's also I feel like just like pop culture from our stage where like everybody goes to the beach and jumps up in the air and everyone's holding hands and does that photo, which I feel like is also something that most people listening to this can probably relate to or have seen. Yeah, like trying to emulate a freeze frame photo and like a jumping photo is trying to freeze you in the air and jumping. And that's like also what Nick did is like jumping in the air. Exactly. And then the other part of that was his fist pump, which immediately made me think of The Breakfast Club because there's an iconic fist pump at the end of that. And that movie released in 1985. And if you're not familiar with it, it's an American teen coming of age comedy drama film, which was written, produced and directed by John Hughes. And Most people have either heard of The Breakfast Club or watched it, but what I thought was super interesting about it is they only had a million-dollar budget, and it earned $51.5 million. So I knew it was a popular movie, but I didn't realize just how much money they really did make off of this. And the actors in it, two of the actors at least, Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall, were both in John Hughes's 1984 film, Sixteen Candles. And before that even finished filming, John Hughes had already asked them to be in The Breakfast Club. So it was nice to see that, you know, these actors have played so well together in multiple films and with the director and, you know, really like capitalizing on that for another great film. 
Yeah. And as soon as I saw Nick do that, it was not a verbal pop culture reference, but it was definitely a visual pop culture reference because the way he was standing and like how he made the the motion of it was just very much the end. It's the end of the Breakfast Club and what Bender does and makes that motion. It's very, very iconic. I really, I really liked, you know, the reference to that in that moment too, because he's trying to, because it's kind of to the Breakfast Club is trying to make the point of the teenagers trying to be understood and like really making a point of who they are and their like rebellious nature in a way. And I think Nick in a way is like, yes, my tomatoes, fist pump. I'm going to do this successfully and I'm excited about it. And to like echo that, I think part of it, like you said, is about being understood by themselves, but also by like adults. And I feel like in that scene, we've talked about how the couples were on one side and he was on one side. So it was almost like he was trying to be understood by the couple. So it's like a very cool like you said, visual reference to Breakfast Club. Similarly, in a way, we also are going to reference the song Surrender by Cheap Trick. This is the song that Jess is singing while she's tap dancing to calm her parents down. You know, mommy's all right. Daddy's all right. They just seem a little weird. Surrender. So that's the chorus of the song Surrender. Uh, she sings it both to calm her parents down. She later sings it to Russell and Uli, hoping to calm them down. Um, but this song is actually a late 1970s teen anthem. And it's not really a song about people in like a fight, like a distinct match. Like j- the way Jess was using it was not really what the lyrics intended. Um, the, the lyrics are actually describing the relationships between uh, a narrator and his parents. So a narrator in the baby boomer time and his like GI generation parents and the misunderstanding between them. So in a way, it's kind of similar to like that Breakfast Club reference because that's some of the same strifes related in this in this song. Um, but then this song actually was listed as number 471 of 500 greatest songs of all time, which made the list, even though it's towards the bottom. Cheap Trick as a band is an American rock band. They're from Illinois and they formed in 1973. And since they've had 19 albums, even up until currently, which is crazy, it's so many. But then this song, Surrender, was actually the first song of this band, Cheap Tricks, to hit the Billboard 100 chart. And it peaked at number 62 on that chart. So a little insight into that song, Just Was Singing, which in a way, too, was a verbal pop culture reference, but it wasn't actually listed by the name of the song. She actually sang part of the song. When we first watched the episode, I didn't even realize that she was singing a real song. I thought it was just another song Jess made up and she's been making them up since she was a kid because we've seen Jess do that in Bully and everything really. She says in the first episode, she sings to herself. So it was it's really cool to see that in this episode. We typically get into our guest stars next. So we're going to start off with Uli because... She was a big part of this episode, obviously, in setting up this breakup for Jess and Russell. So Uli is played by Jean Triplehorn, and she has done quite a few different things. And actually, she has a TV show that is coming out right now because it's in pre-production. So um, that's called The Gilded Age. She's also been in TV shows like Mrs. America, Undone, Criminal Minds, and Electric City. But when you look at her IMDb page, it's actually more movie-based that are her top known films. So four of those were Basic Instinct, The Firm, Waterworld, and Sliding Doors. I actually haven't seen a lot of these, the stuff that she's in, is what I realized is looking through her stuff. I've seen, I think I've seen Basic Instinct before, and I know I've seen Waterworld, but then I don't, I think now if I were to go back and watch after re-seeing I just also, I like calling her Uli. Uli's a fun name. It's just fun to say. But after seeing Jean in New Girl in these episodes, I feel like I would go back and maybe watch some of these and recognize her. But I've seen it before and I didn't make the connection seeing those first and now seeing this. So kind of interesting. But then some personal info about Jean is that her father, Tom Triplehorn, was a guitarist with the Gary Lewis and the Playboys. And she actually used to be a DJ in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is where she grew up. So I guess she's also been into music before. I don't think she's doing that much anymore as she, as Kritika said, has has a TV show coming out quite soon and been acting for a while. But then Relationship-wise, she was um, in a relationship with Ben Stiller in the early 90s for six years, but 
you know, since then she's been married to Leland Orser, who's another actor um, since 2000. So she's, and they have a, like one son together, I believe. So it's a little bit about Jean Triplehorn. Uh, the other that we are going to reference or share with you in this episode is Nadia, who is played by Rebecca Ballantyne Reed. And so Nadia has been in very few TV and movies. Obviously, she's been in New Girl. She's most known really for her role in New Girl and then also for the, uh, her role in I Live With Models. Um, and that is a she's been a regular in that on Comedy Central. And then she's also starred in a few West Coast theater productions. Uh, Last Night in the Garden, I Saw You in French, wait- French Waitress and has done some theater acting as well. And she's been in one movie, but it was a short called Soft. And that's really all she's done. And then on the personal front, like we said, she's done some like theater premieres. So she's also done stand up at the Hollywood Improv and Comedy Store. And she's a writer herself. Uh, In 2019, she published a collection of her short stories called Back to You. The other thing that's kind of interesting, we thought, is obviously she's playing a Russian in this episode, but she is a British actress of Scottish and Ukrainian descent. Like Kelly said, she's really notable for her presence as Nadia in New Girl, but she's also a model herself, and she's been a model since her teen years, and she was in like Italian Vogue, Elle, Harper's Bazaar, and she's worked with very famous photographers too before she evolved into her role as an actor. The other thing that's like really fun about like looking into this podcast other than just the analysis is always finding trivia or fun facts about episodes or the show in general. So for this episode, we wanted to touch on the fact that obviously we saw Nick and Jess fighting in this episode. And we found this article that kind of mentioned how a lot of Elizabeth Merriweather, the creator of New Girls colleagues, had said that they felt that Nick Miller contained a lot of her personality and her personality traits and how she views things. But when she gives interviews herself, she considers Jess to be a better reflection of herself. And so although Nick and Jess kind of fought similarly on this episode, they have pretty different personalities in general. And so it's kind of interesting to see how other people see us versus how we see ourselves, which I think is kind of touched on by the fact that you know, her colleagues think she's more like Nick Miller and she thinks she's more like Jess, which we thought was a fun fact. Yeah. I can definitely see though, how they have maybe some pieces of their character that come from the same root, if that makes sense. Like the shaking their butts at each other scene. Maybe they both started doing that because Elizabeth Merriweather is, that's how she would react and how she would act in a similar situation. So then both of them did that. But I'm speculating on that, but I I could just see it. I could see how it's related. Getting into our ratings, IMDb gave this a 7.7 out of 10, and the audience viewership on this was 5.2 million viewers in the U.S., and I ended up giving this episode a 7.5 out of 10. I did enjoy it. There were some funny scenes, but I think there, as we kind of discussed and reviewed, like, you know, Jess was still trying to solve problems that maybe she didn't need to solve with Nick and with Russell and Uli. Also in this episode, Nadia, like, like I said, I really, really enjoy Nadia, but then really was starting to question myself, like, do I enjoy Nadia? And, you know, what she's representing here and how they make her character out to be. And I also kind of just plot wise, there was a lot of different things happening in this episode and they were not really connected. And so I think... The story to me was like, we're at the hospital, we're at the apartment, we're here, we're there, you know, we're on the roof, we're in the, you know, they tried to do a lot. So I I gave it a 7.5 out of 10 because I just couldn't, it wasn't a standout for me. For me, it was an 8 out of 10. I don't think it was necessarily a standout episode for me either, but it was a fun episode to watch without diving in this deeply. I also felt like, getting Cece and Schmidt to admit their feelings for each other bumped up this episode a lot more for me. And if that resolution hadn't come in, it would probably be almost a seven because the rest of the storylines were just kind of frustrating to some extent. Like we've talked a lot about how we don't like how Jess is like trying to fix everything, which I think brought it down for me as well. But Schmidt and Cece kind of saved it for me, which is funny because my favorite character is neither of those though. Cause my favorite character in this episode was Nick because even though he regressed to be with Caroline, I still feel like he showed some growth in listening to Winston and trying to do these tomatoes in 
trying to move on with his life in a productive way, even if that's not what he accomplished. And so he brought a lot of humor as well, but I think his growth really made him my favorite character. Yeah, my my favorite character was almost Nick. Nick was such a close runner up, but then because I also agree that his humor with the scarecrow with everything was definitely kept him in the running for me for favorite character. But I ended up choosing Winston because when it really came down to it for me, even though Winston was getting all gushy about Shelby and all of that, like I was happy for him in that note. So I was like, I like this for you, you know, like this is a a good moment. But then I also just loved Winston's comebacks. Like maybe they were a little snarky, a little mean to Nick, but he was on it. He had such humorous responses and comebacks for Nick. And then also at the end, he was gluing the tomato on the tomato plant. I died for that. Like, that was so sweet. Like, okay, he was like given the comments, but then he was like coming back with making Nick feel really special. And I just had to pick him as my favorite character because I think Winston, more than anyone, was really showing what it means to be a great friend in this episode. So that's who I chose. And I think that's pretty consistent of Winston. For the most part, he is the voice of reason. He is the person who is really there for everyone more than Jess, who kind of sees herself as that person. Yeah. No, definitely. So that wraps up everything but our spoilers. And we really appreciate, as always, y'all listening to this podcast and hearing our thoughts about New Girl. So if you did find it interesting or if you enjoyed it, please, please leave us a rating or leave us a review in Apple Podcast. We also appreciate any feedback you have. So you can send us an email at whosthatgirlpod at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter at whosthatgirlpod. So now if you don't want to hear future storylines or our spoiler section, you have five seconds to pause. If you do decide to pause we'll chat again next week for episode 23 our end game couples is where we always start so first off we have jess and nick and oh boy i really loved it I can i was like holding back a little bit in the discussion because I'm like, this is it. This is the beginning. They're realizing it. This is the passion. But we kind of talked about through how it was like, yeah, maybe it was passion. Maybe it was like actually just like Nick or I mean, just dealing with anger. Um, But there are sparks there. The sparks that Jess wanted with Russell, they're happening with Nick. But I don't think either of them is really realizing it, especially Nick hooking up with Caroline, who he like has fixated on you know and Jess is just after breakup so I don't think she's really in the mindset either but there's definitely sparks there whether they recognize it or not and I agree 100% like the chemistry is there we know they're going to get together and this episode is very indicative of that like Jess is supporting Nick at the beginning too but we only gave this a 7 out of 10 because they're not quite there yet obviously Nick is starting this thing with Caroline and then the other thing is like we said this feels like passion, but in a way that could go very negative, like uh, Russell and Uli could have gone. So it's a little bit lower from that front, but we really do think they're on their way to being this couple. And we're really excited, even though it doesn't happen right away. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, Schmidt and Cece, this is it. We've given them a 10 out of 10. I think for the first time, they've admitted their feelings for each other. They are together and I'm so excited about it. I don't I don't know what else there is to say. Like yes, Schmidt just hooked up with Nadia, broke his penis, but who cares? They're together. <laughs> They've admitted their feelings. I agree and I'm really glad to see that, you know, in previous podcasts Kelly and I have talked about like does Schmidt want more with with CC and I think he really didn't even know himself what he wanted and didn't because I think he was very happy to just be hooking up with her, but if she was interested like He's also happy to have more. And I think that's really shown in this episode because he does have sex with Nadia, which means he wasn't so invested in Cece that he wouldn't sleep with anyone else, which kind of like is what I was talking about. But at the same time, he does want to try things with Cece, which I'm really excited about. And I'm happy that like what I was saying in a couple of podcasts isn't actually the case, that he is willing to give this a try. And hopefully we have only good things from them for the rest of the season, at least. For the rest of the season, at least, definitely. Um, So he, as much as he was showing growth a little bit and like actually, like you you said, like coming through and like 
wanting to try this with Cece. On the douchebag tracker this time, he did not score very well. So we rate it where a 10 means he's a douchebag and a zero means he's super genuine. And so on this ranking, we gave him like a 7.5 out of 10 because he was really condescending to Nadia. And he also went on a date with Nadia. Like, those kinds of things are not great. That's kind of douchey. And immediately, right? Like, he saw Cece starting to object, but immediately was like, oh, no, I'm going to go. And, like, this is what you want. And, you know, really getting vindictive, like we talked about it with it. And then, like we've talked about, sleeping with Nadia, not just going on the date. So a lot higher, even though it was brought down by the fact that he didn't admit these genuine feelings and he's really like going to give this a try with Cece. The last spoiler that we have outside of our endgame couples is Winston talking about Shelby's cat and saying that he's a cat man. And this was so exciting to see just like Winston start that progression towards getting his own cat. There's so many times so far in, in this, in season one even, that Winston has been referencing or talking about cats. He's obviously never talked about dogs or like a, we've never seen him talk about a dog in the same way. And here he is like gushing about Shelby's cat. Like you said, he said he was a cat man. And I'm just like, clearly, clearly you were always going to get a cat. Like, I don't know how we all miss that. Like, I feel like that was a, a moment where it's like, as people are watching this in real time, you know, it's not maybe something people have picked up on, but then Ferguson comes along and we're like, he got a cat. Like Winston got a cat, but no, Winston has always enjoyed cats like since the beginning. <laughs> and I think anyone who binged this versus watching it weekly probably had a better chance of picking that up because they are so subtle in the whole grand scheme, but it's exciting to see that either the writers were planning hints from this point and from even earlier episodes or that, you know, they kept that consistent and were like, okay, we're not going to give him a dog. We're going to give him a cat. And that's Winston's personality. Totally. But that's the end of our spoilers section. So again, Kelly and I want to say thank you for listening to this episode of Who's That Girl? We always love your feedback. So please tell us what you like and leave us a rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this now because that's what helps other people find us as well. So leave us feedback there or you can leave us feedback via an email at whosthatgirlpod at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at whosthatgirlpod. So we look forward to hearing from you guys and we hope you're back next week for the next episode. Thanks. Thanks.